Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. So we wanted to talk to fellow food lovers and record their stories. We're having conversations with everyone from home cooks to food producers and restaurateurs. So why not join us as we explore food in all its glory? Today we're talking to Nathan Jones. Nathan is an interesting character. He's a friend of Alex's and her partner Dave. And I think... Based on what I've been told about him, he's absolutely fascinating and there's bits about him cycling across the world. He was in the army at one point. He's quite the traveller and I'm really keen to find out a little bit more about him. Nathan, have you ever had an, an interview where it started like that? Never. Never at all. You sound like kind of Ray Mayer's character. I'm going to introduce Nathan a little bit more, even though he sat right next to me thinking, what are these girls talking about? So Nathan is a really old school friend of My Other Half Dave. And uh, in 2012, he cycled from Bristol to Tokyo to raise money for his wife's charity, which is pretty cool. And as Karis alluded, he was also in the army for a short time. And so there are quite a few interesting food stories that we think we can wheedle out of you about those times. But first of all, let's start with the one question that we ask everybody at the start of the podcast so Nathan hello welcome what was your first memory of food Uh, my first memory of food is international I remember pan au chocolat I think it was in Menorca when I was maybe two and I was fed it by one of my parents and I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever tried. In Menorca as well? I believe so. That classic Menorcan breakfast I have to dish. say, though, I've had pastries in Spain, and they're actually really good, so I'm not surprised. And you were two, and you can remember that? I believe so, yeah, two and a bit. Wow. It's impressive. That is impressive. I don't think I can remember anything, like, pre-12. <laughs> <laughs> no, neither can I. <laughs> Do you have a bit of a sweet tooth? Yes, I'm a bit of an everything tooth. I like my food. <laughs> That's good to hear. I'm glad that uh, you're talking to us. I want to share one of my favourite food memories of Nathan, and he already knows what it is because it was quite recent and it just makes me chuckle. So um, Dave and I went round to Nathan's for dinner a few months ago, maybe last year actually, and he made chicken fajitas and I was like, yeah, love chicken fajitas. And then he said, oh, hang on, there's something in the oven. So I was thinking, oh, yeah, wedges or garlic bread. Nope. It was a whole roast chicken. So he served us chicken, like, packed with meat, no scrimping on that, chicken fajitas with a side of roast chicken. I didn't know chicken was a side. It is when co-op have it reduced. Fair enough. And there's also further chicken-related meat stories. Didn't you turn up to a barbecue one day and you had been to the shop and found um, just a bag of chicken hearts and thought, hey, they're cheap, let's give them a go? That's true. That was actually... One of the, one of the one of the foods I brought back from from the bike ride in in China they they um, you didn't bring uh, it with you on no, the bike right <laughs> sadly not okay they would, they would have gone off slightly but no barbecue chicken hearts with um, grated or uh, crushed Sichuan pepper over the top wow it's really really popular with the uh, Uyghur um, people uh, in Xinjiang province in the far west of China have you ever tried Uyghur food Karis? It's possible that I have not known what I've been eating. We went to a Uyghur restaurant in Melbourne, of all places, and it is such an interesting food. Like, Nathan, you'll probably know more about it than me because it's almost a mix of, like, Turkish, like, kebabs and and naan-type breads, but then also curries and also noodles. It's a really interesting mix. Is that like Desi Indian, where it's like a combination of they sort of pull a few things from Chinese cuisine and into Indian Maybe, yeah. 
Um, I think this leads us quite nicely anyway into asking you some questions about your bike ride. Can you just kind of tell us a bit about what you did, where you went, why you did it? Well, I hopped, hopped on my bike. I had some my parents' house and sort of headed east. That's pretty much what I ended up doing. Why I did it, uh, according to popular psychology textbooks, it's all my parents' fault. Um, <laughs> I, in all honesty, it was, it was uh, you know, I can waffle about I wanted to feel the contours of the earth, the seasons, <laughs> see that we're all connected. But but really, actually, I, I like the idea of, um, you know, when you cycle, um, you burn off a lot of calories, so you can eat as much food as you want on the way and yes. not get too fat. Man after my own heart. And so when you say you hopped on your bike in Bristol and you headed east, you headed all the way to Tokyo? Yeah, yeah. So it's quite far east. Yeah. Fairly far east. And where did you go on that journey? So I followed rivers and canals through Europe, uh, dropped down into Turkey, and then tried to follow some of the older silk routes. Uh, um, I went across uh, Georgia towards the Caspian Sea and up into Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and then into China. All the stands. And mm. you were on your own, or did you have somebody with you? I, I did the ride by myself, but I met with other cyclists on the way. So sometimes we bump into each other in the, in, literally in the street, some of them I accidentally met online. Some of them people I'd ride with for a couple of hours before literally our roads would separate. Um, and others I, I spent several weeks with. They were from all different corners of the world. Some were heading home. I met a Japanese cyclist who had done an internship in Europe and was going home afterwards. And I met others that were just touring in their own countries or others that were, like me, heading east. Was it a fairly lonely existence i had a kindle okay <laughs> no it was it was at times yeah and how long did it take you it's 13 months wow so one of the questions that i wanted to ask you about was what food memories you have from that trip 13 months is actually quite a long time uh, is there anything that really stands out in your mind often food that's easy to carry sometimes isn't very exciting and easy to prepare. So I, I ended up eating lots of the same thing. Some places, so Central Asia in the winter, there was a real, um, sort of not food poverty, but you could buy carrots, you could buy cabbage, you could buy stale bread. The only vegetables that I really could eat was gherkins, pickled gherkins, tins of tomato, like tinned tomato paste. And eventually when spring arrived, and I arrived in Kyrgyzstan, and all of these summer vegetables, you know, appeared in the markets. You get amazing salads, fresh mushrooms. And it made me realise how much in the UK and in the West we, we, we just don't see uh, sort of the winter, um, sort of winter foods. You know, so we, we kind we, of take it for granted that we can yeah. get everything all year round. Yeah. Yeah. The curse of the supermarkets. Definitely. Well, you say curse, but I definitely try and eat seasonally here, yeah. but it kind of puts it into context, doesn't it, I think? And and I guess you probably came across quite a few things that you would never have seen before. And were you brave enough to buy those and do something with yourself? Or were you relying on stopping at a restaurant and saying, I don't know what that vegetable is? So often the vegetables were quite similar to ones we have here. Some of the meats were more unusual, such as the chicken's hearts that we mentioned earlier on. If you go to, uh, there's an animal market in, again, in, in China and, uh, 
they they line they line up the animals' heads in front of the meat that you want to buy to show what meat it is, and that was always a bit interesting when you could see camel um, wow. or even a horse. Um, wow. So there were things that I'd not not uh, uh, you know you wouldn't get in the supermarket here. The problem was on the bike. I don't have a refrigerator, and generally if I if I'm gonna buy something, so once I bought steak and obviously I had to cook it within a few hours of buying it. Sometimes because of the the outside temperatures, I, all I want to do is cook very quickly, eat, get in my sleeping bag. Sometimes you're too tired, so you can sort of get it's a bit monotonous, mm. you're a bit lazy. But other times, I, yeah, if I could get into a restaurant and try some of the local foods, I would. And it was interesting, especially if you're like me and terrible at languages, you, you end up eating the same thing. As soon as you know you can order something in a language and people can understand you, when you're tired, you're hungry, you mm. you don't want to play menu roulette mm. where you randomly point at things you can't read on the menu. So I'd order the same dish and um, you could see the, the variation of it throughout an area of a country or over several countries. That's quite interesting, actually, isn't it? That you almost become an expert in one dish and you can <laughs> see how regionally it changes or yeah across borders how it changes so given that you travel through so many countries and you are well traveled anyway and your wife is well traveled is there anything that you tend to cook at home that you first discovered or tried when you were abroad so plov is always one that springs to mind so it's a central asian dish with mutton carrots generally root vegetables roasted in a big pot and again you'd see this this great change of Plov, depending on which country you go to, sometimes it would have fruit, sometimes it would be very greasy, sometimes very dry. You know, it depends on the chef, depends on whether he's by a main road in the middle of a desert, or whether he's in the middle of a town with access to markets. And that's actually a dish that you had at your wedding. Yeah. And yeah. it was brilliant. It was um, kind of, all of the catering was kind of Central European. It's world themed almost. It was easy to cook en masse which is one of the reasons we chose it, so we could feed lots of people. Um, I like the way that the plov was served in these kind of huge, um, almost like bain-marie dishes, but with the bread lining the whole thing and over the top. Was that right? I can't actually remember, because I, I actually missed the meal, um, because I was too busy chatting to people, so I just got given a plate thrust in front of me um, about two hours after everyone else had in my experience, that happens at weddings, <laughs> yeah. so it's no surprise that you missed out on some things. Do, do you attempt making that at home, or is that something you yeah. let everyone else try? No, no, I, I, I make it at home. If I'm having lots of people around, then it's one of my go-to dishes. It's quite good. It's a bit like, you know, paella. Mm. Um, you can, but it's, you know... Do you, do you have a recipe that you, you work with, or do you just kind of go off the cuff and hope something works? Well, I bought a Central Asian cookbook a couple of years ago and um, I've been trying to get recipes out of that and trying to trying to recreate. Uh, actually, one of the cyclists that I met on on the bike ride, he somehow managed to wangle a, a job um, about two years later going around Central Asia, or mainly Kyrgyzstan, um, but the whole of Central Asia was covered and he had to interview people about cooking and about their recipes. Oh, that sounds like um, a dream. That is perfect podcast fodder. We, we should tap you up for his details, for I sure. Will. I realised earlier that I said Central European and I definitely meant Central Asian. <laughs> there might have been a slight pause on a podcast with me going, uh, my geography is terrible. 
Actually, I wanted to just say that there's quite a funny story of my experience at Nathan's Wedding with the plov um, and a lot of the other, the kind of the pickles and the, the salads that we had. So I was helping put plates out, I think, and by the time I'd finished, I noticed that all of our friends were all sat down and the table was full. So I ended up joining a group of um, elderly relatives and kind of talking them through each each dish on the on the table, and it was actually really funny. The how did they How did they feel about eating food that they'd probably not have before? There was definitely a comment from one person that went along the lines of, "Can I eat this?" And his wife responded with, "Yes, dear, that's normal." <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of sad and and funny at the same time because you know that so many people in that generation just you know they were meat and potatoes sort of cuisine lovers but you know and the and now you know it's it's a global global cuisine available anywhere and I think we're so lucky and and they weren't as lucky but I guess that's you know that's what they had. It's completely understandable as well as if you've spent 70 years of your life eating meat and two veg to then someone to thrust a king prawn curry under your nose and say eat that you know we're incredibly lucky to have the 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 availability and the ability to travel but also to have all of this amazing food here at home exactly so nathan the weirdest thing you've eaten um i I think a couple of things again spring to mind i was once given again in i think uzbekistan uh fermented mare's milk which was slightly grainy bitter and fizzy all at once and when this was given to me at breakfast when I was obviously it wasn't to my my liking so um, the farmer that I was staying with picked up a, a good good pinch or small handful depending on your point of view of salt threw it in the drink and then gave it back to me with a sort of knowing nod that you know I, I'd enjoy it now and um, it was definitely one of the, the only truly unpalatable things that uh, I was presented with. So did the salt help or not? No, okay. <laughs> not at all. But nice things that I had. One of the one of the weirdest things was actually raw horse. I was given very very thinly cut raw horse in Japan, um, and that was that was lovely. That was I think given to me uh, by a friend I went to school with who was studying out there, um, and I think he was giving it to me hoping to freak me out. And I thought this is delicious. It was very very nice. <laughs> so talking of kind of unusual things, or certainly from Karis and I's perspective, you used to be in the army. And because we know that, we went online and we bought some army-style ration packs, <laughs> which actually we are hoping to crack out and try after this after this is finished. So if, if you can, I'd quite like to hear your thoughts on food that you ate when you were in the army, especially because you were out in Afghanistan. Just kind of understand a bit more about that type of food, what you ate, when, what it was like. It's just something that's completely alien to kind of civilians, I guess. Okay. So for people that haven't seen them before, so um, and I'm speaking about British Army rations from, from memory, and they may have changed now, I'm not sure. But generally you, you, get, you get a cardboard box and in there you, you have three or four um, meals in, in like silver foil, boil in the bag type things, and then some other snacks or chocolates or nuts. Actually, while while I was sort of, um, while I was in the army, they were going through a great 
transition, a great evolution in the ration packs, going from the more traditional meals designed by people that were used to eating, you know, meat and veg. Um, so we, when I when I joined, we had lots of things like corned beef hash. You'd have sausage and beans for breakfast. You got given bran biscuits and a tin of pate, um, and really really odd meals, Yorkie bars. And then obviously when the army spent more time in hot countries in Iraq and Afghanistan, they they started to introduce um, sort of meals that were not designed for just northern Europe and started to, to introduce like some more world food, mm. more an international food to sort of you know, sort of like my generation and you know the generations that were coming up, sort of what what we would eat, what we'd like to eat, mm. what remind us of home. So you start to see curries. Uh, the introduction introduction of um, like spicy sauces, Tabasco sauce, and then um, I think later on they started bringing in bits from other countries' ration packs. So some from you know New Zealand or American or Australian ration packs. So you started to get um, different products from literally all over the world. In terms of food that I ate overseas, um, Afghanistan, I think the only thing I tried was a bit bit of um, I think melon and bread when it came to actually local Afghan cuisine. So you would be eating these ration packs like 24-7, day in, day out? Generally, yeah, unless you unless you were in one of the bigger camps where they where they had, you know, uh, full-blown uh, cooking, like uh, mm-hmm. dining hall facilities. Um, if you were lucky, you or it was always interesting, you'd, you'd maybe go to an American base or another country was based, and you'd get resupplied or you could try their ration packs, which was always interesting because you've got different flavours, it was it was very very interesting. The the Americans seemed to have lots of snacky food, sort of sandwiches. Mm. Um, you could get burritos. You could get very unsuitable things to have in in uh, these things. Whereas if you went to a, a Danish camp, you'd end up with something like wolfish stew and very very heavy calorific things. That you added water to that were obviously designed for sort of very mm. northern European yeah, climates. Absolutely. I was watching a YouTube video recently uh, when I knew that we were going to talk to you and it was a, a soldier in the US Army and he was talking about his favourite meals or dishes, I suppose, from the ration packs and, and what his hacks were. And some of them involved, like, there was like a, a squeezy cheese that he put on between biscuits so that he, you know, felt like he was having something really naughty and and um, I think he was making tacos out of a couple of different items that he had. So did you have any hacks? Did you have any specific things that you actually really quite liked, even though it was a bit like, I can't believe I really like this? I think the only thing I remember thinking of the squeezy cheese, I actually noticed you had some in your box outside. Um, That's one of the the things that that I always remember in the American ration packs. They used to do a squeezy cheese with jalapeno peppers. And I thought that was wonderful. That does actually sound quite good. It sounds edible. It may well be an American one that we've got because we um, we basically have a kind of a mishmash of different packs that we got from uh, auction site that we will not mention. <laughs> it's all very tasty. No, the the only thing that I ever, I suppose, the only thing that I ever had as a as a hack was I actually took my own coffee with me whenever I could. I'd actually take coffee out into the field or and, and or if you were very lucky you uh, you'd go and do some work with the, the Danes and they seem to be inundated with with real coffee other than that no I was I was quite happy I was a bit of a as long as I had food to eat I I didn't really mind was there anything that you really missed from home I guess that applies to cycling as well really you know when you were out of the country for prolonged periods of time not always in the most comfortable of circumstances. Was there anything that you really craved? Cold water. 
It's the only only thing that I can ever truly remember genuinely craving. Because obviously, you, if you're sort of moving around in desert conditions in the summer, be it on a bike or um, in in Afghanistan with the army, and then all you have to quench your thirst is a bottle of water that's somewhere in the you know 30 plus degrees. It's not very satisfying. Quite often, we'd actually make cups of tea because obviously hot water doesn't taste very nice. Uh, we were always told that if you make a cup of tea, it can lower your, lower your body temperature. Um, is that actually true? I have no idea, but it's always good. We're British, we should have cups of tea everywhere. But no, cold water for me has always been, um, been the thing I miss the most when I'm somewhere hot like that. Where would you like to go back to because you didn't have enough of the food while you were there? Georgia. I'm, I'm actually dying to go to Georgia, so tell me more. The, so the Georgian food is fascinating. Uh, not don't want to patronise any anyone that might be listening, but so Georgia's sort of in between Russia, uh, you know, uh, Turkey, Central Asia, um, and Iran, I suppose. And uh, you you get all these wonderful influences in the food. Sort of some some you know hangovers from the Soviet Union. You get some really interesting sort of I don't know what I'd call Turkish influences, and again sort of you can either even feel sort of influences all the way from sort of China. Um, on Georgian cuisine, so some of it can be very, very heavy, lots of light, interesting salads. They, the sort of one of their the most famous dishes, uh, hachapuri, um, which is a, think of it a pizza with a pizza with Georgian cheese, and it comes in different, different uh, varieties, different sorts. Because Georgia is very, very mountainous, has lots of valleys, and each valley and each area has its own identity. So you can get sort of Mengrelli, and you can. Um, um, or you can, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but um, Adjururi, I don't know, Hachapuri, but you get different sorts. So that was that was quite interesting, again, in, within a very small country. And Georgia also was one of the main food baskets of the Soviet Union. So they, they, they have a really interesting climate where they can grow almost anything. So they grow their own tea, they, they can grow sort of most vegetables and most crops. I've been told they have really excellent wine too. Absolutely fantastic. I... I, yeah, I have a very, very soft spot for Georgian wine. When you go, um, you can you can buy obviously the high high end product that they they export. They do some very, very nice sweet reds. But you the the, the wines that I found the most exciting were the, the ones that families make or restaurants make, and they they bring to you in an old Coke bottle, and you can you can really taste the grape. And it's, That's fab. Um, sometimes they'll give you a pot of sugar with it, and you can decide how sweet or dry you want the wine to be. Can we go to Georgia tomorrow? Definitely. Oh, that that sounds amazing. And now I think it's time for dinner because you've made me really hungry and Alex's stomach is rumbling over there. I'm desperate to try a boil-in-the-bag stew. Yes. We'll actually post some pictures on uh, with the show notes. We'll, we'll post some pictures of what we've eaten. Yeah, I think. So thank you so much, Nathan, for talking to us. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. We really haven't. There's so much. It's been so interesting. I feel like I've actually learned stuff about you as well, which is really nice. So I guess on that note, we will say goodbye. Goodbye. Um, Thank you for downloading this podcast and continuing to listen to us waffle on about food. We have a website now, so head over to www.appthesource, as in source like S-A-U-C-E. Get it? Yeah. Wink, 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 wink. Appthesource.com. And why not give us a follow on Twitter too? It's at Appthesource. Over and out.